writing this sermon over the last number of days, not least because my computer, my Apple Mac, insisted on auto-changing Samson to Samsung every time I was trying to type his name, which was really bugging the life out of me until I worked out how to override that. And I did feel actually like emailing Apple and saying, listen, the Bible was around a way, way before mobile phones and TVs, but such is the world that we live in. But of course, the much greater challenge is in making sense of all that we encounter in this chapter of Scripture that we were reading together just a few moments ago. You'll notice that in the middle of the chapter, there is a riddle, and that to me seems appropriate because the whole chapter reads like a bit of a riddle, doesn't it? Right from the the opening verse, right the way through until the end, there are those things that would leave us scratching our heads or covering our eyes, so that if we were to respond to this chapter by emojis, if we were to send a couple of emojis to friends or to family, summing up what our first reading of Judges 14 left us feeling like, they might be the emojis um, that you would choose. And with that in mind, therefore, tonight, once again, I want to absolutely assert the truth that this is God's Word. That has to be the starting point in our consideration of this passage tonight, that we would say to one another, this is the Word of God, and not just in a general sense, lifting up our Bibles, but physically looking at the verses in front of us in Judges 14, reading through those verses again, scanning through them, that as we read those verses together, we would be committed to saying, this is the Word of God. That what we read here is what the Lord wants us to hear. Be sure of that. And therefore, we shouldn't skip past it and pretend that it's not there. We certainly should not be apologetic about its content, as sometimes you almost sense some preachers are when they stand up to speak from God's Word. We should not apologize for what we're confronted with in Scripture, as tricky as some of that might be to understand. And we certainly say tonight, at times there are things that we read in Scripture And on first reading, we find them difficult to understand. And most of all, and please hear this, please, please hear this, we should never, ever judge Scripture as if somehow we know better than God what is appropriate and what is helpful. Who are we to stand before the Lord and say, actually, as I read this passage or as I read this chapter, I really struggled with that. I wondered why God would do that thing, or how could God possibly do that? This is the Almighty living God. And with that in mind, tonight we continue to look at the life of Samson. We thought about his birth or the events leading up to his birth last Sunday evening, and we said of Samson that he is probably the best known of the judges. He's right up there with Gideon and Deborah for sure. And we also said that, you know, Samson is a pretty problematic character. 
You heard what my dad thought when I told him about Judges and how he said, I have to admit, I really struggle with Samson as a person. And maybe having listened to or read along that passage tonight, you're beginning to have sympathy with my dad's point of view. You could really struggle to warm to this guy, Samson. And it is such a reminder to us that it is very important that we don't get so fixated on the characters that we meet in Scripture as much as we can learn from them, but that really we need to be fixated on God. We must never lose sight of the Lord and what is revealed about Him and His Word. The focus absolutely needs to be on Him. And this book is not so much an instruction manual on how we should live our lives each day. This book is much more a portrait of God's character. It lets us see what our God is like. And what have we been learning about God through this time in Judges? Well, remember the key things, that He is utterly faithful, that He shows wonderful grace. And we saw great evidence of that last week. We'll say more of that in a second. And that He loves to save His people. God absolutely loves to rescue and deliver His people. And all of that is good news for us. And all of that is ultimately confirmed in Christ. It is Jesus who enables us to see all of these truths about God most clearly. And we were really able to see these truths last time as we considered the circumstances leading up to Samson's birth in chapter 13. Remember that cycle? And again, we put it up on the screen here tonight. That cycle that there is in this book and in the wider history of God's people, it keeps recurring. That is why it is a cycle. And yet, we found out last week that in chapter 13, one part of that cycle is actually missing. If you read back through chapter 13 again, you'll see that there is no cry out to the Lord from the people. There is no seeking of God. There is no reference to or indication of repentance anywhere in that chapter. And yet, despite that, well, what do we read in verse 5? What do we hear of the one who will be born, that he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines? God sending a Savior. And for us, the big lesson of chapter 13 is that as we read through that chapter, we see that the birth of Samson, that the provision of this Savior is in spite of what God's people have done, not because of what God's people have done. And it reminds us of God's grace at work in our lives. If only we had the humility to recognize that in our own life, in our story, that in Jesus, God has provided us with a Savior, not because we deserve Him, but because the truth is we so badly need Him. Then how are we to make sense of the events of chapter 14? And as I ask that question, you could rightly say in response, well, guess what, Philip? We don't need to make sense of this. You do. 
That's why you live in the big house down the street. That's why you get paid here. That's your job. Tell us what this means. And hopefully tonight, with God's help, by God's grace, I can do that for His glory. And so what I want to do is to take us on a really quick tour through the chapter, the events of this chapter. And what you're going to discover as we run through it again, this is not a story of happy families, okay? This is not a chapter where good neighbors become good friends. In fact, it's quite the opposite. This is a chapter of confrontation. It's a story of discord, of disharmony. So, as we go through the chapter, just keep a list of the confrontations that there are here in Judges 14. Here goes. It begins with a young man who, who knows what he wants, and he demands to get it. So, that our first glimpse of Samson isn't a particularly positive one. I think this is what my dad meant. This is what I was beginning to drive at last Sunday evening. So, here is Samson. He sees a Philistine girl. He fancies her, and he decides, she's going to be my wife, and that's it. Decision made. What Samson wants, Samson will get. Just look at the way he speaks to his parents in verse 2. It's really abrupt. I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. That's an abruptness that suggests to me that Samson was a bit of a spoiled brat. And the confrontation comes because his parents don't think that a Philistine girl is the right kind of girl for Samson. They would have known God's instructions about who his people should and should not marry. And I hope that as you look at that first confrontation, you're able to see that this is a very human chapter. What I mean is, this is real world stuff here. After all, this is a confrontation that many of us will be able to identify with. Is that not the truth? Whether we are the child in the scenario or the parent in the scenario. And then a second confrontation this time, and it's one that we will come back to at the end, this time between Samson and the lion. And actually, there's something deeper in this confrontation it is a great reminder to us of just how comprehensive the fall was and is, the impact of the fall. We tend to think the fall into sin tarnished our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. What the Bible tells us is that the fall tarnished everything in creation, that it put nature at discord so that this lion comes at Samson, and Samson in the power of the Lord rips the land to pieces. So, Jack, that's our first bit tonight. Jack likes those bits. He rips the land to pieces out in the desert, and it's pretty dramatic stuff. And then a third confrontation, and this is the one that lies right at the very heart of the story. Samson goes to Timnah to marry this girl, and at that time, a wedding in the culture would have been a big, big event. It would have been 
a week-long festivities every single day. And because Samson comes from out of town, he's given 30 companions who will attend to him during all of the festivities. And during what was undoubtedly a bit of a drinking session, Samson tells them a riddle with a bit of jeopardy attached, that if they solve it, they will each get a set of fancy clothes. But, and this is the big win for Samson, if they don't solve it, then all of them owe him a set of clothes. He will come out the big winner. And Samson reckons that he set them an impossible riddle, one that relates back to that lion that he'd ripped to pieces. Because later on, when Samson was walking past the lion, he went over to check it out, as you do. And he noticed a, a beehive in the lion and, and honey, and he scooped the honey out, and he enjoyed some of the honey. And it got his mind working, and it formed the basis for the riddle here in verse 14. It is a pretty good riddle. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. But as we'll get to see, this is much more than fun and games. This all gets really serious. Because on the one hand, the companions are absolutely determined to solve the riddle, to, to get the solution. But on the other hand, Samson is absolutely determined to keep the answer from them. And what happens? Confrontation. Which in turn leads to other confrontations. So that it causes a confrontation between Samson's wife, or sorry, between the companions and Samson's wife and her family. And it gets really ugly here. Look at verse 15. It's not, oh, would you please tell us? No, it's coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us. Or what? We will burn you and your father's household to death. This has got well past the fun stage. And this in turn leads to more confrontation, the tension between Samson, who is still determined to keep the answer from them, and his new wife, who is absolutely terrified and will do anything to save herself and her family. Indeed, we need to say, and we'll not get into the heifer reference too much, but we need to say that in this chapter, we do not see women being treated well. It's summed up in the way that right at the end, the wife is simply passed on from Samson to the best man. And the final confrontation that when Samson's wife gives in to the demands of the Philistine companions and spills the beans about the solution or the honey about the solution, and they then share it very smugly with Samson, haha, we've got the answer. Samson absolutely cracks up in verse 18. And this time it leads to a violent confrontation. Samson raging at what happens takes it out on the Philistine community in Ashkelon. That striking down means killing 30 of their men and giving their belongings to the companions. So that this chapter of confrontations ends with terrible bloodshed. 
Now let's stop a second and catch our breath. That's a lot of stuff to take in. And let's just take a moment, look at that list on the screen. Look at that list of confrontations. It's a whole matrix of relationships and interactions. And the common theme here is discord, confrontation, brokenness. And then when we think of our own lives, when we think of this world that we live in, we see exactly the same. We know that the Bible deals with the realities of life in this fallen, sinful, broken world. But how do we make sense of all of this? A chapter that is full of selfishness, greed, distrust, deception, intimidation, and ultimately killing. Is this chapter simply flagging up the brokenness of our world, our, our sinful world? And where is the Lord in all of this? Because in the verses that we have surveyed so far tonight, the Lord is not even mentioned in these verses. So how then could this chapter be described as a portrait of the Lord's character? Where are we seeing God's faithfulness in the midst of all of these events? Well, we come to the absolute importance of verse 4. Note that verse, please. For it is the key to unlocking this whole chapter. Verse 4 is the verse that enables us to make sense of what we're reading in this chapter. And it helps us to see where this fits in to that much greater story of God's faithfulness. And if you look at that verse, if you're reading tonight from the NIV, as some of you will be doing, you will notice that in the New International Version, that verse is placed in brackets, and that's significant. Being placed in brackets, that tells us that that verse is an aside. It's a bit like a writer's note or an editor's note to explain something. It's a bit like the extra explanation or detail that we might give when telling a story. In fact, I get accused of doing that far too much, but you know if you're telling someone a story and you're trying to explain it and you maybe make reference to someone and you say, oh, by the way, that girl is a sister of, you're giving explanation to better understand what's going on. And you see, as readers of this story tonight, as readers of God's Word, we have the wonderful benefit of hindsight. Because the extra information that we're given here in verse 4 lets us see what the parents of Samson were unable to see at the time. It enables us to see the Lord's hand in these events. Look at verse 4. And here's the explanation. When Samson came demanding this Philistine girl, the explanation comes, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. In other words, and let's be absolutely clear about this, it was the Lord's will. It was His plan 
for Samson to pursue and marry this Philistine girl. It was God's intention that this whole matrix of relationships and interactions that would be created as a result of them coming together would happen in the way that they did. And that seems strange to us tonight. Because after all, it is the Lord Himself who commanded His people not to marry those who worshiped foreign gods. We, we know that and we have read those commandments given by the Lord many times in the Old Testament. Samson's parents understood that, which would have been a big part of the reason why they were trying to turn him away from this girl and say, marry one of your own. So why was the Lord ordaining this to happen? Well, we don't need to guess too much because the reason is given there in the verse. Can you see it? That the Lord was seeking to confront the Philistines. The Lord was looking for a big showdown because confrontation was the way that it had to be in order for God's people to be saved. And you see, without that explanation in verse 4, then this chapter would simply confuse us as much as the riddle in the middle of the chapter baffled the 30 companions. But with verse 4, we begin to see the bigger picture. Indeed, with verse 4, we're able to see in the midst of all of this confrontation the bigger picture, and it is good news. Once again, we see evidence of God's faithfulness. Once again, we see evidence that God loves to save His people. But you could well ask, well, how could God possibly use such circumstances? Philip, I've read that chapter. I'm looking through the events of that chapter now. It's an ugly chapter. How could the Lord use such circumstances for His glory and the good of His people? Well, it is really important to say because Scripture makes it absolutely clear that the Lord is not the author of sin. And we're told that clearly in the Bible. He is never the instigator, the originator of evil, because that would go completely against God's character. Indeed, it is an impossibility, as we learn in Scripture. But the Lord is sovereign. Do we believe that? The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is in control in this fallen world. And indeed, in Scripture, we see so many examples of the Lord taking and using broken things and broken people for His glory and for His people's good. Is that not what we were learning back at the time when we were looking at the story and the life of Joseph? Remember how that story goes, and, and Joseph is going to be killed by his brothers. And then, as far as they're concerned, the next best thing, he's sold into slavery, and it seems completely hopeless, and it's an evil act turning on your brother like that. And yet, it was God's way of bringing 
his chosen one to the place where he wanted him to be. It was such a huge part in God's salvation story, so that later when that reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers takes place, he looks back on that time and he says, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Oh, people never presume to judge the Lord and His ways. Who are you or who am I to do that? Don't look at passages in the Bible like Judges 14 with all of its brokenness and all of its discord and cast a doubt as to how God could use these people, how God could take these circumstances to fulfill His purposes, to save His people, because He can, and He did, and He does. And if I can put it like this, if you doubt how God could be at work in the horror of Judges 14, then to be honest, you will probably question what lies right at the very heart of the gospel. Because think about the gospel. Think about its central act. Think about the cross of Christ. Such a shameful form of death, the lowest of the low, put to death in that way. God using His very enemies to bring about His ultimate salvation plan so that we know this verse so well later. Speaking about all of this, reflecting on this, Peter, as he, he preaches to the Jewish people, tells them on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.23, this man Jesus was handed over to you, listen to this bit, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. What that's saying is it was His desire and His plan. And you, with the help of wicked men, put Him to death by nailing Him to a cross. You see, confrontation was the way that it had to be in order for God's people to be saved. But just as we finish, that's not the only good news in this chapter. It also reminds us of God's power to save. We, we read within this chapter the role of the Spirit of God. Two occasions, verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. And then verse 19, then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, that is Samson. He went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 of their men. The Lord, the Spirit of God, gives incredible physical strength to Samson to do these acts which we may well find unpalatable. But they are acts which bring about this confrontation between the Lord and the Philistines, those who are oppressing the people who He faithfully promised to save. And as such, if you think about it, ultimately these acts in Judges 14 are saving acts. So that we, as we finish off, sorry I didn't put that verse up, we as we finish off get to see 
the promise of chapter 13, verse 5, beginning to be played out. That of Samson, he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. As we make our response to this tonight, and as we go 